Okay, so my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, if you're new, it's really great to see you. We're in the final week um, of a teaching series that we've been doing in the book of Daniel. And in this series, we've been asking just one really simple question. How does our faith thrive when kingdoms are in conflict? How do we live in the tension of when the kingdom of God intercepts with the kingdoms of this world, with the, the kingdom of our workplace, the kingdom of our universities, the, the, the kingdom of our neighbourhoods, the kingdoms of society at large? How does our faith not just survive, um, but how does it how does it thrive in those environments? And so we've been revisiting the story of Daniel and his mates, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these guys are taken into exile. They're taken from their home, Jerusalem, and made to serve a foreign king, King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of this place called Babylon. And, um, and really what the Babylonians did was they tried to water down um, those that they captured, watered down their own expression of faith and, and practice and encouraged them to bend the knee towards other gods, and um, the gods of Babylon. And so the temptation for these guys, the temptation for Daniel and his friends is to compromise, is to um, allow the tension and the pressure of, of competing ideologies um, to overcome them. Uh, and the, the temptation is to to bow down to Babylon's gods. Um, but as we've been been journeying through this book, I think the thing that stands out is that these four guys are really resolute about what they believe, uh, are really committed uh, to serving the one true God, and they're not swayed in any way, shape, or form, even at the the risk of their own their own lives. And so what we've seen as we've um, been exploring this is two significant things that seem to repeatedly happen as we've gone through uh, this book. Uh, first of all, um, time and time again, the events that we've looked at lead to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, having to acknowledge the God Most High. You know, so time and time again, we get to the end of a chapter and Nebuchadnezzar is like, oh boy, I've got to acknowledge him again, haven't I? I've got to worship him again. And, and, and so um, we, we see that happening time and time again. The other thing that we see happening is Daniel and his friends are continually promoted uh, to places of influence and position within the kingdom of Babylon. So even though they defy the rules of the king that's oppressing them, even though they're unwilling to bow the knee to Babylon, the outcome is uh, a foreign king ends up worshipping God, and these these guys find promotion in in the kingdom. You know, because they stuck to their guns, so to speak. Each of them are placed into places of position. And you know we've we've often said, haven't we, that the church, as in you know the church universally, not just us, but the church uh, in the 21st century, is kind of like a church in exile, just like these guys that have been taken 
into exile. You know, so often the church in this, in our culture finds itself like, like a foreigner in a strange land, doesn't it? You know, we, we, we're a minority. Um, we, we, um, face opposition from many different places. And so as we see ourselves kind of existing in these competing kingdoms as, as the church, um, you know, so often I think the church historically has responded a couple of different ways. And um, the way the church often responds is sometimes not really that helpful. So one of the, one of the ways uh, that the church has dealt with the issue of these conflicting kingdoms is to withdraw itself. And so what happens is the church retreats and um, it creates its own little world and lives in its own sort of Christian bubble, if you like. And, uh, and so the, the church that thinks like this kind of deals with the tension, deals with the, the conflict of these kingdoms by creating a Christian subculture, if you like. And, um, and, and so they end up doing things like only ever going to Christian events or only having Christian friends or only sending their kids to Christian schools or, or only ever listening to Christian music. And then they avoid, avoid things like pubs um, or going to the cinema or um, you know, anything that was considered secular. I grew up in a brethren church and, um, and that was the deal. You know, that was the deal. You avoided things that were unpure. And, and, and so the church that operates in that way often retreats to defend itself, but then it positions itself to critique from a distance. And so what the church does in that, those circumstances, its way of dealing with this conflict of cultures and kingdoms is to isolate itself, but then send out critiques to the culture around them, why it's all condemned, why it's all wrong. There was a couple of groups in Jesus' time that were a bit like this. The first group was a group called the Essenes. And the Essenes were this uh, Jewish sect that in order to deal with the issues of society was they removed themselves from society and set up camp away from everybody else. They isolated themselves away from everyone else. The other group was the Pharisees, and they're like this hyper-religious group who, who kind of are really good at keeping rules and telling everybody else where they've gone wrong. And so they would, their way of dealing with the issue was to critique the culture around them. And so as the church, we can sometimes find ourselves trying to deal with the, the tension by going that way, can't we? Where we just isolate ourselves and we critique uh, the culture around us. Another way that the church has attempted to respond to the conflict is to simply try and just be relevant and blend in. You know, if we, if we just... Um, you know, give all the right signals and say all the right things. And actually, don't get me wrong, it's healthy, I think, for us to act and speak and talk in a language that the world around us understands, that we want to be a church where, uh, as the Apostle Paul says, we become all things to all men that we might save a few. Um, but often, in our attempt 
to be relevant. In our attempt to blend in, the church hits a point where it bumps with something. Where something ends up being compromised. Where, where, where we think, you know, if we go that far, is it a step too, a step too far? And so we, the church ends up with this compromised nature. And again, there was a group like this in Jesus' day. There was a group in Jesus' day called the Herodians. And the Herodians were considered collaborators. They were turncoats. They were the ones who collaborated with Rome. Uh, they, they gave up their identity for the comfort of their oppressors. And so the prevailing kingdom around them was shaping who they, want, they were. And again, it's easy for us to fall into that place, isn't it, as a church? I don't know about you, but I like to be liked. Do you? You know, and, and so it's easy for us, isn't it, as a church to not be too confrontational, to just blend in and just, just fit in where we can and, you know, everyone will like us, everyone will pat us on the back. But I don't think that position is a healthy way at resolving the conflicts, resolving the tension of these, these kingdoms. So there must be another way. There must be, if you like, a third way of being, responding to these kingdoms that are in conflict. And I think that's Jesus' way. I think that's Jesus' way. Jesus had this ability, didn't he, to be a pure, spotless man. He lived a pure life, yet his reputation was he was a friend of sinners. And Jesus was this perfect man, this God-man, but he hung out with all the wrong people. And so as we respond to the tension, as we respond to the conflict, our job isn't to withdraw and critique, and our job isn't simply to try and be as relevant as we can and blend in and be distinctive. A guy called Andy Crouch, he says this, it's not enough to condemn culture and it's not uh, sufficient merely to critique culture or copy culture. Most of the time, we just consume culture. But the only way uh, to change culture is to create culture. For too long, Christians have had an insufficient view of culture and have waged misguided culture wars. But we, we must pre- Reclaim the cultural mandate to be creative cultivators that God has designed us to be. And so this kind of is a long way around of kind of, kind of leading us to, to explain what's going on here in the book of Daniel. Uh, because Daniel and his friends discover, I think, a third way. They don't isolate themselves and critique Babylon. And they don't bow the knee to Babylon's gods. But instead, they discover another way of being. A place that embraces the conflict and tension, but at the same time is distinctive. They, 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 they maintain their distinctives. We said a few weeks ago, they, they affirmed what could be affirmed. They opposed what needed opposing and they created culture where they needed to. And so the result was 
these, these kings, King Nebuchadnezzar becoming a worshipper of Yahweh, becoming a worshipper of the true God, and Daniel and his friends continually being promoted, uh, promoted in influence in, in Babylon, and they became culture creators in a foreign land, in a place of exile. And you know, the thing that that says to me, and really encourages me, I don't know about you, um, but I think that means there's hope for the church. You know, I, I hear all sorts of commentators say the church is a decade away from decay. You know, um, you know, you know, there's just the generation and there'll be no more church. But actually, I think the church thrives in a place of exile. That the church thrives when we have the opportunity to interact with the culture in the way that we should, in the Jesus kind of way. And so we've just been looking at this idea of, of how different characters in the scriptures have dealt with the tension, and particularly Daniel and his four friends. So three friends, there's four of them. Um, just created another one. Um, so we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6 this morning, if you've got a Bible. And the astute of you will know that we've skipped chapter 5. Um, Chapter 5 is an interesting series of events. Kim Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Um, and King Belshazzar becomes the ruler of Babylon. And um, Belshazzar's goal was to change the religious order of Babylon, to create a god of himself that people would, would worship. And so he throws this extravagant party. Um, probably an adults only kind of party. And he takes, you know, when, when, when Babylon first invaded Jerusalem, they took elements from the, uh, from the Jewish temple, sort of gold and silver goblets and different things like that. And, and Belshazzar, he takes these, these, um, elements from the Jewish temple and he, he defiles them, uh, at this party. And as a result, a disembodied hand comes into the room and writes on the wall. You can see why I didn't preach on this passage this week. But um, um, it writes on the wall and basically says to Belshazzar, your days are numbered, Sonny. Um, that's, that's my version anyway. So, And we get to the end of chapter 5 and it says, the, that very night, Belshazzar, king of Babylon was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And actually that one line at the end of chapter 5 uh, is the end of the Babylonian kingdom. Uh, and, and the start of the Mede and, and, and Persian kingdom. So chapter 6. Chapter 6 is probably one of the most famous uh, passages in the book of Daniel. Uh, it's probably headed in your Bibles as Daniel in the Den of Lions. And, and we see uh, this new king, Darius. Um, he sounds like a character from Doctor Who. He appoints 120 officials to rule his kingdom. And then he has these three administrators, and one of them is Daniel. Okay, Daniel is one of the administrators, but because of Daniel's reputation and character, 
Actually, the king wants to make Daniel the the man who's overall in charge. Basically, he would be the second in command of this king's kingdom. And of course, um, Daniel's peers are really pleased for him. Um, that he's got this job offer. Of course they're not. Um, they are slightly ticked off. And so they plan to figure out a way that, that they can, um, that they can, uh, basically ruin Daniel's opportunities, uh, for this job. And they, they seek to discredit him. They, they look for some juicy information that might mean uh, the king will have second thoughts. Maybe it's a slightly risque photo on Facebook or, I don't know, a slightly dubious expenses claim at the office. I don't know what it was, but they were looking. They were looking for something, but actually they couldn't find a thing. Verse 4 of chapter 6 says, They could not find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt or negligent. And so they realize there's nothing they can do. And actually, the only way they can trip Daniel up is to undermine his faith. And so they intentionally create a situation that will trap Daniel. They basically go to the king and they say to the king, you know, you're such a great king. Why don't you issue a decree that if anybody worships any other God or any other human being other than you for the next 30 days, then they'll be thrown into the lion's den. And so these guys, out of their jealousy, have Daniel right where they want him. They have him in this place. Uh, now, Daniel's an interesting character, isn't he? He's... Um, He's this Jewish exile. He's now second in command. Uh, he's a man full of integrity. And, you know, we could just trivialize um, this situation that Daniel finds, in, but finds himself in. But the reality is he's going to find himself in a real lion's den. It's not figurative. It's actually a real lion's den. And, you know, we could that our way of trying to apply this could be just to simply look at our own suffering. But it's, it's, really, it's really easy to trivialise this situation in that way because we, we can sometimes forget there's, there's millions of, of people who follow Jesus who are being actively persecuted uh, for what they believe. You know, over the summer, we heard from from uh, Paul Robertson from uh, Release International and just the reality that over 200 million Christians in, in 60 countries um, suffer from fundamental human rights solely because of, of having a faith in Jesus. And so it's easy to trivialise, isn't it, the fact that Daniel is in a real messy situation. He's in a, in a place of real need. And so there are some real circumstances and real realities that many that we should call brothers and sisters around the world who, who are facing hardship and pain like none of us could ever experience. But wherever we are, 
but wherever we are, eventually, at some point, all of us will face the realities of of, of being misrepresented, criticised, ridiculed for what we say we believe. Maybe we do face ridicule on a daily basis. Maybe you walk into the office and you've just got that one person who makes a beeline for you and they always kind of like in a condescending way saying, no, you know, do you really believe that? You know, and they just give you such a hard time. Maybe in your workplace you, you just, you suffer from um, ethical challenges. When your own convictions place you in a different uh, perspective to your work colleagues. Maybe you're in that place right now and you're discovering the pressure to compromise. You're discovering the pressure just to say, you know, I just, I just want to have an easier life. I'm just going to go with this. And you're finding that, that pressure there to compromise. And you see, the reality is, is living with challenge, living uh, intention of the kingdom is hard work, isn't it? It's, it's hard. But we see Daniel as someone who lives in that tension. He lives with that tension and responds differently. See, when Daniel realises he's been stitched up, when he realises these guys, what they've done, how does he respond? In verse 10, and I want to, I want to kind of park in verse 10 this morning. It says, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. You see, Daniel could have attempted, couldn't he, to run away. He could have, he could have done that. He could have tried to use his position or power to try and alter things. He could have tried to, you know, he's got access to the king. He could have tried to issue a counter decree, um, to just turn things around. He could have complained. He could have done all the things that you and I do when we're in crisis, couldn't he? He, he, he could have done all those things. But instead, he turns towards God. And he prays three times a day. And so I guess the, the question that kind of flows out of this is, how do we become the kind of people who don't compromise when the crisis comes? How do we become those kind of people? Because none of us become... I might be wrong, but none of us become the kind of people who settle for lion's dens when there's an opportunity to get out. That doesn't happen overnight, does it? We don't become those kinds of people. And so as we look at Daniel, the thing that we see that is in this moment of crisis, he, he prioritizes one thing, he, he prioritizes prayer. It says three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Now, I don't know how you picture Daniel, but I, you know, I kind of picture him as a fairly young, physically fit, 
Attractive guy. I could say that. I'm comfortable. Um, attractive guy. But the reality is, by Daniel 6, Daniel was in his 90s. He's 90 years old. Why is, why is that important? Why is that important? Well, it says three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed and give thanks to God just as he had done before. See, Daniel prioritized prayer morning, noon and night just as he had done before. In other words, this prayer wasn't a oh no panic prayer. Okay? But it was actually a lifestyle It was a commitment that he made. I'm guessing when it says just as he had done before, it meant for the last 70 years he'd done this. For the last 70 years, morning, noon and night, he prioritised prayer in his life. You see, prayer isn't just some dutiful thing that we're called to do. Prayer is actually a key ingredient to a growing relationship with God. And you see, if we're going to be the kind of people who live in the tension, if we're going to be the kind of people who don't compromise when the conflicts of kingdoms are pressing in around us, we need to be men and women of prayer. We need to be men and women who pray. We said at the beginning of this series that Daniel and his friends would have had to compromise on some things. They would have had to compromise on the language they spoke. They would have probably had to compromise on the clothes that they wore. But there were three things we said right at the beginning that they didn't compromise on. They didn't compromise on their worship. They didn't compromise on their identity. And they didn't compromise on their purpose. And it's not just bloody-mindedness, okay? It's not just like, I'm being defiant, I'm not going to compromise on this. But they also pressed in to the things that they wouldn't compromise on. And so it says three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed. Now that's a position of worship, isn't it? Daniel is three times a day, he's in a position of worship, worshipping the one true God. Uh, in, 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 in a land where it says Darius is king. In a land where it says Nebuchadnezzar is king. He's the one you should be worshipping. But instead, he chooses to lean in and worship uh, his God, the, the God of the universe. It's also interesting um, that when Daniel prays, he prays with his window open towards Jerusalem. And I think he was reminding himself of his identity. That his identity was in a different place. He belonged to a different people. He belonged to Jerusalem. Now, we're not called, not necessarily called to do that, okay? Um, you'd have to get a compass out and, yeah. Um, but you know, when we pray, and when we pray, God, your kingdom come, and God, your, your will be done. We're asking God to engage in our world and we can be insecure in our identity and reminded of the place he has in the purposes of God. 
And so we, we do, we do that, don't we? We pray, your kingdom come, and we, and we look for a time when God's kingdom will be fully fulfilled. And it's in that place we find our identity. It's in that place we find our purpose. And, and what God's going to do. And so if God's opinion is an opinion that's important, is important to us, then we need to be people who make space for his purposes and agendas. We need to be people who every day are like, okay, God, what you got for today? What is it you would have me do with my time today? What purposes do you have for me uh, in my home, in my workplace, in my university? What purposes do you have for this next season? You see, Daniel's challenge to us is is not to be people who just pray in crisis. And it's good to pray in crisis because it means you finally come to the end of yourself. But it's not just to be people who pray in crisis. But it's people who build intentional moments of communion with God. People who are intentionally connected to him. And so often prayer is our last resort, isn't it? It's the last thing we think of doing, but actually it should be the thing that's, that's constant. It's the thing that's constantly there. And so I'd encourage you, just build some rhythms into your life. You know, we've been promoting this, this resource called uh, Rooted, which is just a simple way of reminding ourselves to stop and, and interact with the Lord. And so one of the elements of Rooted is to just set an alarm on your phone for 12, for 12 noon. And when that alarm goes off, mine just says pray when, it, when the alarm comes off. And it just reminds me to stop and pray just for a few moments, just to pray and breathe in and just acknowledge God again. And you might think, Steve, you get paid to pray. Um, but, you know, I can guarantee, you know, when we're in our office during the week and different members of staff are around, I have to force them to stop um, because we're so busy doing God's stuff. But actually, it's really important. It's really important to just have rhythms in our lives where we can just, for a moment, stop and say, you know what, if I stop working for the next five minutes, the world's going to continue. If I just stop for this moment and pray and just breathe God into my environment again, Everything else will continue. And so as a staff team, we've been trying to do that. I I have to crack the whip. Um, uh, But you see, the real battle isn't in the lion's den. Okay, That isn't where the battle is won. The battle is won on our knees in communion with God. That's what I'm convinced of. That's where the real battle is. He's run. One. So what happens to the result of Daniel doing battle in prayer? Uh, verse 16, it says, So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, uh, continually rescue you. 
A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's uh, situation might not be changed. Then the king returned uh, to the palace and spent the night without eating or without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wounds were found on him because he trusted in his God. Now, one of the strange things about this story is it's a really well-known story. You know, um, that and the fiery furnace with, with Daniel's friends, it's one of the classic Sunday school things, isn't it, that we teach our kids about torturing people. Um, um, but one of the classic things about this story is that we don't really know much about what went on in the lion's den. You know, this big, I imagine, this is how my mind works, a big ten-foot angel came, and I maybe like wrapped a muzzle around the lion's mouths. Maybe he gave them one of those like big steaks that was drugged. Um, <laughs> I don't know. We, we, we don't know. That's the reality. But what we do, what we do kind of get a glimpse of is this king and how this king, uh, king responds. It's almost as if the, the writer is kind of being deliberate. He's kind of saying, you know what? Daniel's safe. Daniel's going to be okay. But just look at what happens to this king. It totally wrecks his world. What's, what's about to happen? So the king, he can't sleep. Which I think is a, is a little bit odd. He's ordered this guy to be thrown into the lion's den and he suddenly feels guilty. And, um, and so he's just wondering as, as Daniel survives. So first thing in the morning, he goes to the lion's den. He's like, Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has he rescued you? Have you been rescued? And Daniel replies, yes. Now, it's interesting to know, it's only here, after he's been chucked in with the lions, that Daniel uh, defends himself for the first time. He says, they did not hurt me uh, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done wrong before you, your majesty. You know, <laughs> Daniel, you should have defended yourself much sooner than that. But he defends himself after he's been chucked in the lions then. Just a little bit crazy. And then and, and it says this, it says this in verse 25. Then, the, then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, uh, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is, a, he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He will rescue he rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. 
You see, the thing that we've seen all through this journey in the, the book of Daniel is these four guys who were fully engaged in the culture around them. But at the same time, they remain distinctive. They're fully engaged with the world around them, but at the same time, they remain who they are. And when their moment comes to stand, they courageously do so. Without compromise. Because they were the kind of people who invested themselves in God for the long haul. There was an investment made long before any of this happened. And the result is they're given more favour, aren't they? They're given more position, more opportunity to shape the redemptive history of Babylon. More opportunity to, to see God's glory come into that kingdom. It says in verse 28, so Daniel... Uh, Sorry, so Daniel uh, was during, uh, proposed during the reign of Darius. Uh, <clears throat> I need to put my teeth in. So Daniel prospered, there you go, during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. You know, I, I really believe uh, that God really wants to do some great things in this town. And... Um, and I think he wants to do that through normal people like you and me. I don't think he necessarily needs that many superstars. And uh, I think he, he, he will do them things in the normal places. He'll do it in our workplaces. He will do it on our campuses, in our neighbourhoods. The places where you and I simply do life. And, and I believe he will do it that way because you and I have an opportunity to shape the redemptive history of our town. We have the opportunity to see this place change forever. But it's gonna be, it's gonna have to take people like you and me who are rooted. We're rooted in the culture of our town. We, we're committed to seeing this town prosper and, and flourish. But at the same time, that we would be people who are distinctive enough to make a difference. And all of that flows out of our investment in our, in our hidden life with Christ. It flows out of who we are in him. I was, I was praying a few weeks ago and I just, um, just felt the Holy Spirit just uh, remind me of, of a passage of scripture. And uh, it's in uh, Joshua 3 and, and verse 5. It says this, Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things amongst you. You know, we said at the start of this term, you know, when Tammy and I got back from our sabbatical, we said that, you know, if God was going to continue to make us a bigger church, we felt 
he first needed to make us bigger people. That, that there was a challenge. And the challenge wasn't go, which is what we expect, don't we? You know, let's go and do this. Let's go and conquer the world. But the challenge was on your marks, get set. Let's get ready. Let's, let's ready ourselves. And, and, and my sense is that this passage is, is kind of like just a, a word from the Holy Spirit for us right now as a church. Consecrate yourself. Build new structures into your life. Build an interior life with God. Be a transformed people. Live from a, a new identity as sons and daughters of God. Create new habits of holiness. God said, be holy because I'm holy. So consecrate yourself. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things amongst you. And I really believe that's a word for us as a people. As we seek to live in the tension, as we, you know, we go to work, we, we do all the things that we do and we, we face the challenges that come our way. I think we're, we're to be a people who are ready not to compromise. A people who don't sort of go back on the back foot. But actually we're people who, who would prefer to get in a lion's den than to compromise what we believe. That's kind of scary, isn't it? I'm going to invite the band back and um, we're going to worship. But I just... Before we dive into that, I just thought we'd have an opportunity to respond uh, to the Lord this morning. So I'm just going to ask you to stay seated for the moment. And we're going to pray. Joshua spoke to the people, consecrate yourself. Get yourself ready. Build new habits into your life. Develop a hidden life with him. For tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things amongst you. And so Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would come right now. We just invite your presence to, to be amongst us, Lord. And so the challenge this morning as we continue to worship is just that those that are, are saying, yeah, that's me. I, I need to be someone who is building new habits in my life. I need to be someone who's not just praying the last minute prayers of desperation, but actually I've got an interior life that equips me for all the things that are going to come my way.